As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. This week's episode is supported by another true crime podcast called True Crime Cast. Small town murders are often overlooked, but they can be just as bloody and unsettling as any high profile murder. True Crime Cast brings these crimes to light. Join Jamie and John as they discuss a different crime each week. Hear about small town Appalachian murder mysteries that have flown under the radar until now. Listen to True Crime Cast on your podcast app of choice. Distributed by Stove Leg Media. Welcome to Case Closed, a show about the times the bad guy didn't get away with it, the times the good guys discover exactly who the killer is, and how sometimes that's just the beginning of the story. I'm Charlie Spicer. When we left off last episode, Chris Lee had just been arrested in Alaska for the first-degree murder of Aaron Corwin. All the evidence pointed to Chris as the killer, but the battle for justice for Aaron was just getting started. Today, we're going to take you inside how detectives gathered that evidence to make the case against Chris, why it took so long for the case to make its way to the courtroom, and how the case sparked national interest, a spotlight that the Hevelin family had to contend with as soon as Aaron's body was identified, according to her mother, Lore. She would be mortified if she was alive in all this... Attention. You know, limelight, attention. You know, trying to get her picture for prom was next to impossible. She Mm -hmm. didn't want a big wedding because she didn't want to be the center of attention. The Sheriff's Department called a press conference and announced that Aaron had been positively identified and for the first time announced that Chris Lee was the suspected killer and had been arrested in Alaska and was going to be extradited back to California. There were thousands of Marine wives on the Marine base and, you know, they were protected. They were, you know, living in this secluded community, and for this to happen to one of their own was just really shocking. People kept saying, I hope it's not a Marine. I hope it's not one of our own. And around town, like, that was the sentiment. Like, I hope it's not a Marine. And when it was a Marine, and it was someone that was, you know, supposed to be honorable and respectful and hold held to these higher level of standards, it was just really shocking. By then, the story had been covered nationally on things like People Magazine and some true crime shows, and people were just, like, very, very interested nationwide about the case. The media had really latched onto this story, and there was interest from around the world. Dr. Phil, within 20 minutes of the press conference, his producer calls, 
and uh, left a message. Oh, Dr. Seals, all that they found your daughter's body, and he just wants, wants to let you know that if you need any kind of help, he's here to help you. Despite the interest in the case, it would be a long, slow slog toward justice. After Chris was arrested, he was extradited back to California to await trial. In September, he made his first appearance in the Joshua Tree Courthouse. It was a very small court system. There were only two judges in that entire court that tried criminal cases. Chris's family had hired a high-profile defense attorney named David Kalianatis, and he had been representing Chris before he had even been extradited from Alaska. In his first court appearance, Chris appeared quite different-looking. He had grown his hair out and his beard out. He looked very scruffy. He made his first court appearance, and he pled not guilty to the murder. Chris wouldn't see the inside of the courtroom again until the next April, when there was a preliminary hearing to determine if there was enough evidence to try Chris for Aaron's murder. The entire time, Chris remained in jail. Meanwhile, the wait was agonizing for Aaron's family. Was the pre-trial conference the first time you even saw Chris? No, I saw him at the apartment when I was there when she was missing. Oh my gosh. And he looked at me, but, you know, never said anything. What, when you saw him, was that, when you, did you, your stomach things, or did you just, like, not know, or what was your reaction? I guess, you know, like, I would give them eye contact because I just wanted to see what their reaction was, and I did nothing wrong, so there's no reason for me not to look at you. But my gut reaction was, well, maybe he had something to do with it. During the hearing, the detectives presented the evidence they had gathered to the court. After Aaron's body was discovered, the San Bernardino County Sheriff's Department spent two more months in the mine shaft, searching for DNA evidence linking Chris to the crime scene. One of the pieces of evidence that they discovered at the bottom of the mine shaft was the propane tank that Connor had noticed in the back of Chris's Jeep. At the bottom of the mine, they also found an empty Sprite bottle. By that time, they had run DNA evidence on several of the items in the mine shaft. They had discovered that on the Sprite bottle was a mix of Aaron and Chris's DNA, that they had possibly shared that same Sprite bottle. There was also traces of blood found on the propane tank, and those were a match to Aaron, and they found the garrote around her neck. Aaron's body had been found with a garrote around the neck. A garrote is a weapon, like a chain, rope, or wire, used to strangle someone. The homemade weapon was made of braided paracord, two pieces of PVC piping, and black electrical tape. In addition to the evidence, when they had arrested Chris in Alaska, they found in the back of his mom's car a homemade garage, very similar make and style to the one that they had found wrapped around Aaron's neck. That was like a bloody glove, finding that garage. After almost five hours of testimony, 
the judge decided there was enough evidence to continue Chris's case. And given the overwhelming amount of evidence against their client, Chris's lawyers needed to figure out what to do. Chris's defense attorney worked to use the publicity against the case, said that his client was being unfairly tried in the media, and he eventually got both judges who were assigned to the case removed, and the trial was moved from Joshua Tree to San Bernardino County, where it got a new prosecutor. Sean Daughtery was a very experienced California prosecutor who had worked in San Bernardino County for most of his career, and he was assigned as the lead prosecutor on this case. He went to work um, sorting through the evidence, talking to investigators, and deciding the best way to prosecute Chris Lee. For this high-profile case, the media attention also played a role in how the jury was selected. Because everyone in Joshua Tree had heard about the case, a lot of people were dismissed from the jury based on their pre-trial knowledge about the story. So they had to find people who had not heard of the case, who had not already formed an opinion on the story, to seat 12 jurors in this case. And soon, that jury would assemble to hear the case. When we come back from the break, the trial begins. This episode is supported by the new novel, The Vanishing Man, by Charles Finch. It's the latest suspenseful installment in the continuing adventures of Detective Charles Lennox. If you've never read a Detective Lennox novel before, this is a great one to start with. It takes place in London in 1853. In this book, Detective Lennox is assigned to track down a thief after a portrait is stolen from a duke's private study. But there was a far more valuable, even priceless object left behind in that very room, one that holds the key to England's most closely held secret. Now, Detective Lennox must find the thief fast, because a second theft would change everything. You can find a copy of The Vanishing Man by Charles Finch wherever books are sold. It's available in hardcover, ebook, and digital audio. Again, that's The Vanishing Man by Charles Finch. Click the link in the show notes to learn more. As the case finally got underway in the fall of 2016, prosecutors weren't sure what kind of defense Chris's lawyers had planned. Chris's defense was playing the case very close to the vest. They were not revealing anything, that any direction of what they would take. The evidence seemed so overwhelming against Chris that, you know, not only was he supposed to be with Aaron that day, not only was it supposed to be his baby that Aaron was pregnant with, but his DNA was found on items on the bottom of the mine shaft. So the prosecution was wondering what kind of defense was Chris going to present at trial. In homicide cases, there are really only four possible defenses. That the defendant didn't commit the crime, that they did the killing but there was some sort of justification, and then there's a final defense. The devil made me do it. 
the devil made me do a defense is something used in trial that they're not completely in control of their actions, that they might have done it, but they had a mental defect or they were on some sort of intoxicant or possibly, you know, that they had something like PTSD that had influenced their their actions and they're not responsible because of impaired mental defect. Chris had served two tours of duty in Afghanistan and when he had come back he had seen a therapist and had talked about depression and PTSD and so that was really the defense the prosecution was preparing for that he would somehow blame the reason that he murdered Aaron on his time in Afghanistan. The trial began with an opening statement from the prosecutor, Sean Daughtery. He outlined the facts of the case, that Erin was having an affair with Chris, that she believed she was pregnant with his child, and that she was supposed to meet him the day she was murdered. Ordinarily, the defense would make an opening statement next, but David Kalyanidis chose not to opting to reserve the right to speak directly to the jury later in the case, after the prosecution. And so, the first witness took the stand. Laura Hevlin is the first witness on the stand, and Sean Daughtery asks her about the last time she spoke with Aaron, her plans on meeting Aaron on her 20th birthday, and how, when she arrived at the apartment complex, all the ingredients that Laura had instructed Aaron to get for the dishes she planned to make her daughter while she was in town were in the, the pantry, and that was really heartbreaking. When the defense started asking questions of Laura, they started asking her about her first daughter, Trisha, who had died from complications of spinal bifida. This attorney tried to focus on Trisha, asked me Aaron reacted to that or something like that. And I said, well, she cried because she always wanted to be a big sister. That was her biggest thing. You know, he asked me if I'd seen any bizarre behavior from her after that. And I'm like, well, no. <laughs> you know, no. It was a very bizarre thing why they were even asking about this. Like, what was the point of, of talking about this in court? But it forced Laura to relive not only, you know, this incredibly dramatic moment of having to talk about her, her daughter's murder, but also her first daughter, who died tragically and very young. He asked John about Trisha, too, when he cross-examined John. They asked John, how did Erin react to her sister's death? Did she talk about it all the time? They also asked her friend Jesse about Trisha's death. And it created a very interesting mood in the courtroom because the defense hadn't given any opening arguments. Uh, everyone was wondering what this tactic was, what, what they were trying to do. Were they trying to disparage Aaron in some way? And how did Trisha play a role in this? Asling and Connor Malachy were up next. Asling Malachy uh, talks about her knowledge about the affair, how she discovered what Chris and, and Aaron had been up to, and also how many times that she had heard Chris talk about murder and how disturbing it was, the, the type of things that he would do and the actions he would have around the Marine base, um, making weapons and bragging about 
you know, his ways of how he could dispose of bodies and killing people. Connor got on the stand and talked about how he had seen the propane tank in the back of Chris's Jeep on the day that Chris was supposed to be in Joshua Tree National Park and how Chris had led him on a, you know, a bit of a wild goose chase to find him for their supposed coyote hunt that day. The sheriff's deputies who interrogated Chris and the search and rescue team also took the stand. In the courtroom, they played video taken by the bucket cam sent down into the mine shaft. The stark and grainy footage was extremely eerie and, and very spooky being shown in court because, you know, at first they're just seeing rocks and the inside of a mine shaft, but knowing what's to come is so, so, so scary. And then they get to the bottom and they start seeing short glimpses of what looks like almost a rolled up mattress at the bottom of the mine shaft. And you get a little closer and you can start to see Aaron's pink shirt that she was wearing the day she went missing. The entire time that footage is shown in court, Chris does not take his eyes off the screen. On the fifth day of the trial, someone new appeared in the courtroom for the first time, Nicole Lee. For the first time that day, Nicole showed up in court, and she was wearing around her neck Chris's dog tags. Early on in the investigation, Nicole Lee had also been suspected for maybe playing a possible role in the murder of Aaron or possibly the cover-up. And because of that, she had hired her own defense attorney who had fielded all the inquiries from the media and had also come with her to court. Undeterred, the prosecution continued the case. As the trial entered its third week, the medical examiner who conducted Aaron's autopsy took the stand. And his testimony was quite grim. Early on, they were hoping that when Aaron's body was found, that they would be able to determine who the father of her baby was. They knew she was pregnant. She had been to the doctor. But when the medical examiner testified, he said that Aaron's body at that point had been so decomposed that he could not even show for sure that she was pregnant, much less prove who the father of her baby was. That was supposed to be show the motive that he killed Aaron to get rid of her baby. And if they had been able to prove that she was pregnant, the prosecution would have proceeded with double murder charges because of the loss of Aaron's baby as well. Because they couldn't prove that, they could only proceed with the evidence that they had. But even without the motive of Aaron's pregnancy, all the evidence continued to point to Chris. The DNA specialist who testified said that there was a 1 in 16 billion chance that the DNA found in the mine belonged to someone other than Chris. It seemed like the case was wrapping up, finally picking up speed towards a probable conviction. But all that would change when Chris Lee finally took the stand. I said from the very beginning that if his attorney tried to dig up dirt on her, he would not find it. They would have to make something up. And they did. Next time on Case Closed. 
I just wanted to see the face of the person that we'd hunted for seven weeks. What was that like? That was kind of surreal. He comes up with his phone and shoves the phone on my face and goes, she remembers everything that was done to her. Defendants in murder cases don't usually testify in their own defense, so everyone wanted to know what Chris was going to say. Case Closed is a production of Macmillan Podcasts. The show is produced by Katie Ferguson, with help from Becky Celestina, Camila Salazar, Sarah Grill, and Alyssa Martino. Huge thanks to Shanna Hogan. To learn more about Aaron Corwin's story, pick up a copy of Shanna's new book, Secrets of a Marine's Wife, now available at any bookstore or as an audiobook. We'll be back with a new episode next Tuesday. I'm Charlie Spicer. Thanks so much for listening.